forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello. I'm Alison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I was once incorrectly diagnosed with BPD. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and it took four different people to tell me I was bipolar. <laughs> um, this is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. But for the month of May, we are bringing you a special Mental Health 101 mini season where we are tackling some of the most important questions in the mental health field and asking experts to weigh in and answer our questions and teach us things. And oh, man, I'm having a great time. (laughs) Yeah, today we're going to be talking to Dr. Shelley about if diagnoses matter. And Allison, um, what happened with this BPD situation? (laughs) Oh, yeah. One time I was in college and I wasn't doing well. And I saw some lady and she was like, I think you have borderline personality disorder. And we were like, I don't think so. And then I didn't have that. <laughs> Interesting. So you were and and wait, is it does this have anything to do with you getting misdiagnosed with narcolepsy or was that a different situation? <laughs> oh, that was a completely different set, situation. Yeah. Can you just briefly tell the people what happened when you were misdiagnosed with narcolepsy? Oh, yeah. Well, so I was um, experiencing a lot of sleepiness. And so that also led to at one point me being put on um, Adderall, which I didn't need. And then I also once got misdiagnosed with narcolepsy. They gave me this liquid medication that I was supposed to take at night where I would take some of it. And then I was supposed to set an alarm and take more of it four hours later. And they were like, do not sleep anywhere alone, because if the house catches on fire, you will just die. It was also used as the date rape drug, what they gave me. So pretty cool. I, I can't picture you on Adderall because you're already so... Like at that time, like at that time, plus Adderall. It didn't affect me at all. I think I just developed a psychological dependence on it. Oh, God. I don't remember it like really impacting my life in any real way. Oh, okay. If, if you're actually diagnosed with Adderall, that's a totally different story. But if you don't need it, Oh boy. It didn't cause me to be the way that like people who party on it were, which maybe means I, I don't think I needed it, but I guess I just have a high tolerance for medication. I don't know. It didn't really affect me very much. I We know that you do. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know anyone who's ever partied on Adderall. That would be <laughs> so irresponsible and definitely not me in my early twenties. Don't do it. It makes it harder for people who actually need it to get it. And you're contributing to something very bad. And so don't do that. As we hear in this episode, I was told that I was probably uh, had bipolar disorder a bunch of times and a bunch of times I went, no, thank you. And um, we talk with Dr. Shelley about how therapy or diagnosis should be a bit more of a discussion. And so I think I shouldn't have said to those people diagnosing me, no, thank you. And then left and never saw them again. Possibly what I should have done (laughs) is been like, why do you think that? What symptoms, you know, but hindsight's twenty twenty. And eventually you got to a place where you were able to have that conversation. That is true. And that is growth. All of its growth. I no longer snort Adderall and I've got a good diagnosis. You know what I mean? 33, baby. That's where we're at. <laughs> so stick around after the break. We're going to get way more into diagnoses, misdiagnoses, what diagnoses mean, how you get diagnosed, and it's illuminating. So stick around. Just between us, it's Mental Health 101, and we're talking all about do diagnoses matter? Today, we're going to be asking Dr. Shelley some tough questions. She's a psychologist who, in addition to her clinical work, is also an adjunct professor who is published and regularly presents on topics related to microaggressions, healthy relationships, managing stress and anxiety, resilience, and multicultural competence. Hello. Thank you for being our guest. Hello. Hello, and thank you for having me. I think this is such a, an interesting topic and something that we get asked about a bunch and we've never really known the right answer to. <laughs> so I guess like, first of all, like why do diagnoses exist when it's not a type of thing where you can like take a test to see if you have cancer? Like how did we as a mental health community 
even come into these diagnoses and how do we determine if someone fits the right requirements for a disorder? That's a great question. You know, a prevalent thought is that diagnoses or even mental health issues is stigmatizing. And so there are a lot of clinicians that may not diagnose, but really and truly what diagnoses are is a communication of a constellation of symptoms. So it's a quick and dirty and easy way to communicate from clinician to clinician or even to a medical personnel exactly what symptoms that the person says that they're exhibiting or experiencing without having to list all the symptoms. So that's the way I see diagnosis. Now, developmentally, for instance, when you work with young adults, for some people, they're like, don't do diagnosing because some of the developmental symptoms or issues is something you'll grow out of. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't communicate exactly um, something that's maybe lifelong or is going to last for you know a couple of years. And so there's that prevailing thought that, hey, if it's a developmental issue, if it's something where you're a teenager or a young adult and you're having like temper tantrums, let's not say that you're bipolar. Let's just say, right, that you have temper tantrums or that there's some stuff that's going on in your life. Say, for instance, if it's poverty or financial or health-wise that you're reacting or responding to. And so when I do diagnosing, I usually will talk with my clients or my patients and say, hey, this is what I'm seeing. This is what you're telling me that you're experiencing. And so this would be the diagnosis that I would be offering. Is that something that feels helpful? And for some clients, it is. It's actually very helpful because now they can put a name to what they've been experiencing. And can we talk a little bit about how we come to these diagnoses? Is it based off of the DSM-5? What are your thoughts on the DSM-5? It is based off the DSM-5, <laughs> right? Shelly just showed us the DSM-5 for those of you listening. So what's happened here is that the DSM has actually come a long way. It's a diagnostic statistical manual that uh, medical professionals as well as psychologists and other mental health clinicians use to inform diagnoses. And it's come a long way in the sense that there are still things and there were things in the past that was seen as a psychological disorder that wasn't a psychological disorder, but more informative of our culture and our context at the time. So way, 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 way back when there was a psychological disorder if you were a slave that ran away. Wow. Yeah, okay, which is crazy which is what we're seeing now, right? We're like, that's kind of crazy, but it was seen as a psychological disorder if you ran away. And so that was in like the DSM. And as we go through, you'll see that there are things, for instance, gender identity, somebody feeling that they do not conform to their outward appearance was seen as a psychological disorder, but it has changed now in where as the zeitgeist goes on, as what is our prevailing socio-political culture, then they have changed to mimic and respond to that and have deleted certain, certain things that were known as psychological disorders and implemented other more culturally informed things. So you use it, I think when you use it, you want to use it with a grain of salt um, in the sense of saying that, hey, you know what, this is what you're reporting. This is what the DSM says. Does that feel like it matches? And a lot of times that's what I'll do. Like when I diagnose for OCD, or even something like a uh, bipolar or a borderline personality disorder, um, I will say, these. this is a criteria. Is this what you've experienced? And then, of course, there's a secondary part, which is that you have to give examples. It's not just enough to say yes, yes, yes. We've got to kind of go through what are some of the specific examples that, sh- that tell you that this is what, you know, um, is accurate to your experience. Is it true that that mental health professionals or are sort of pressured into giving diagnoses in order for their treatment to be approved by insurance companies? Yes. So for insurance purposes, yes. If you're going through an insurance provider, then insurances are going to ask you for a diagnosis and some diagnoses uh, get a payout and others don't. So an adjustment disorder, for instance, which is usually a temporary, it's just like it or something that's going on in your life that's maybe stress related and that you're having these symptoms as a response to this, 
some insurance companies may not approve that as billing, whereas in something more on the line of anxiety or depressive, major depressive disorder would be more in line for billing and coding. So insurance, you know, insurance doesn't work necessarily well with a mental health provider um, in the treatment of the clients because if for insurance, they want it to be time limited. They want to have a category. And as we know for individuals, uh, a lot of times that it, it's sometimes four sessions are not going to be optimal or even six sessions. And sometimes too, your, what you're explaining and your symptoms don't really fit the criteria of certain diagnoses. So uh, it's a catch-22 sometimes because without the insurance billing, then the client doesn't get their treatment paid for. However, what we tend to do ethically is to make sure that we've explained all of this to the client and then try not to right, feel pressure to change a diagnosis or to make a diagnosis so that the client gets paid. I feel like I sometimes you get a diagnosis of, of generalized anxiety disorder as sort of just like a, a blanket a disorder. Yeah. <laughs> all right. You say you got anxiety. All right. Okay. Is it, is it also, but, but the, right. But the way that we, we tend to ask or assess for that is if it's general anxiety disorder, you have to be experiencing symptoms that impair your normal daily functioning. And that's the key, right? It has to be impairing your normal daily functioning. And then it has to be a time, there's a time stamp on it, which is that you've been experiencing this for three months or more, six months or more. And it's usually daily or, you know, um, multiple times weekly. And then it's in several different contexts. So it's not just about testing. So if you come in and you're saying, okay, you know what, I'm just really worried about academics and testing. That's not really a GAD diagnosis. I like to, I prefer to actually earn the side of caution and do more of an unspecified or a specified in where the specified is saying that these are the symptoms that you say that you're experiencing, but it doesn't meet criteria for a GED diagnosis or unspecified is saying, I don't want to specify exactly what symptoms you're talking about, but it's some in the realm of anxiety. I kind of want to talk a little bit about personality disorders and getting that diagnosis, because I think when we were talking about do giving diagnosis help or harm? Sometimes people view personality disorders as untreatable, right? And so if a if a, a client is like learns that they have a personality disorder, does that then make them feel like, well, what's the point of me even even trying to change? Or do you see the value in giving that diagnosis? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, it's pretty rare in my field for me to do a diagnosis of a personality. This was termed as an axis two uh, disorder, right? It's more entrenched. It's harder. But I think it's similar to if you were given a diagnosis of diabetes. It's treatable, but we're not going to get rid of it, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to manage it throughout your life. And I think uh, personality disorders are similar, which is that there is an entrenchment uh, because your personality, even there are parts of your personality are kind of fixed. It's kind of like it comes, it comes out of as a child, as an infant, you have in this kind of way, right? Either colicky or not, like either fussy or not. And then depending on your caregiving and your environment, you kind of develop this personality. Now, when, and I can go into theory, okay, but that's kind of boring, but in terms of narcissistic versus dependent versus antisocial, et cetera, et cetera, a lot of that is that when people hear what that diagnosis is, it's more in line with, I just wanted to know what is going on, like why things are the way they are. And hearing that information for some people is helpful. Okay, now I get it. Now what causes it is the other part of it. And then how is it treated? Mm -hmm. And even though, yeah, there's not like a medication that we're going to give you or necessarily a CBT treatment that we're going to give you, what you do know is that there are ways that you can manage it, how you relate to people, you know, the kind of choices that you, you decide to make. It's, it's, it's kind of like being on a diet you know, knowing that this is what's happening and this is what I have to do to be able to manage it. Do you think because there's stigma from outside that people are reluctant to obtain diagnoses for, let's say, borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, that 
it might be easier. Either it might be easier to not have a diagnosis because of what other people might think, or the patients themselves don't want to seek out a diagnosis because they don't believe anything's wrong. Absolutely. I think those two points are very salient. I think either of those can be true that for for a lot of people, especially when you talk about cultural aspects, you know, being black, being Asian or being Latinx, then what you'll see is that, yes, uh, mental health or going into a doctor for your for your psychological health is not a thing. And heaven forbid, you're not going to give me a diagnosis that there is an illness. Um, that's even that's even more alarming for some people. And so there is a shine away from that. But I think there's that cultural context or that cultural component. Whereas in when we think about even therapy for those who are affluent, that wasn't that's not stigmatizing. Right. It's more of, oh, you can afford to go to therapy. All right. That's great. You get somebody to just talk to you and just kind of help you with your stuff. Right. When we think about um, Sigmund Freud and who he was seeing, these were upper class white women or, Mm -hmm. you know, men. And it was mainly medical men that were in that started psychology. And so it, it, it wasn't seen necessarily as in that there was something wrong with you, like you were sick, but more that with some treatment, you could be helped. And then it transitioned. My sense is that when it comes to people of color, though, that wasn't accessible and it was only accessible in in asylums or hospitals, Mm -hmm. right? That if there was something wrong with you now, because you didn't have the resources, the financial resources, you were actually held against your will or you were submitted to treatment. And so it took on a whole different context. And so when your power is taken away, I think that's what um, also ramps up that stigma. Definitely. And I think that there was then this move to deinstitutionalize but then by deinstitutionalizing, they didn't provide any resources. So now people are just struggling on their own. They're unhoused. They don't have the, they don't have resources to help with their mental health because it, they didn't provide like filling the gap with outpatient resources. So much, so much of so. And in, and in fact, when you get into therapy, you'll recognize that even um, we have like a hierarchy you know, those that will accept insurance. And the truth is that insurance is not paying you at your going rate, you know? So when you spend all that you do to get the education and all that you do to get the experience, you're not reimbursed at an acceptable rate. You're reimbursed at maybe 20% or 30% of what you charge, not even necessarily 50% of what you charge. And so there is that, which means that the people who um, are more resourceful are not taking the people who may need it more because it doesn't, yeah, it, it doesn't pay your bills. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the other part of it is access, which is that if you have to take transportation, right, mental health clinics or even where they're located, there's the well-to-do, which is a different access to those who don't live where it's not beside a bus stop or a train mm-hmm. stop and it's hard to get there. We did see a ramp up in virtual therapy that if you had an internet access that now it was more accessible, uh, but the insurance thing is still problematic. And so during the COVID crisis, a lot of insurance companies were now saying, okay, yeah, we will pay for online or virtual therapy in where they weren't saying that before. But now that the COVID crisis is petering down or going, we don't know if that's going to change, which then limits people's access again. It's wild because it just reveals that they could have done it the whole time. (laughs) They could have done it the whole time. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of virtual therapy, we don't see very serious cases because, right, if you need to have a hands-on or you need to be able to assess in real time, like what's going like a psychotic disorder or somewhere, you know, even eating disorders or even substance use disorders, then that's a little bit more tricky. Right. You would need to see those people in person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. that would be. How long does it take to get a diagnosis normally? If, if you were to start to see a therapist, how quickly through their intake and assessment would you expect to have that? Some clinicians can do it in one session, one 50 minute session. You can do it right, right off the bat on the assessment. Others will take about two or three. But really within the first five sessions, hopefully it's more than five sessions you get you should be able to get a diagnosis. And so when we when we go to school, right, and we are in our supervisory training, then you learn exactly how to assess, 
so that you have something on the books. And it can be a rule out. And so when we use rule out, it means that we're considering these diagnoses, but we're going to get more information in order to rule it out or rule it in. So really off the first session, uh, when I supervise interns, I tell them, I was like, listen, off the first session, you should already have you should already have something in your head as to what you think this is. And, and then the conceptualization is and why you think it is. And why you don't think it is this yeah. and this and this. <laughs> yes. yes. Does it matter if the person comes in wanting a diagnosis? Do you do you provide one anyway? I, I have um, bipolar too. And multiple times throughout my life, I saw psychologists who would say, you have bipolar disorder. And I would say, no, thank you. So how does that work? No, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I only offer diagnosis if that's what the client wants or if I think it's helpful in the therapy. I will offer diagnosis just as a, you know, so when I'm writing notes and if the client is going to move with their notes somewhere else, I'll write it in because it's a part of the clinical practice. For clients that are coming in and say, I want a diagnosis, and I've seen this, but the way I've seen it is that I want a diagnosis because I don't know what the hell is happening and I need to put a name to it. And so they're usually also the ones that are well-researched. Like they come in and they're like, I think it's this, or I think it's this. And, and so, and that's irritating and annoying. However, what I do see is that what you're, what you're basically saying is that I need to know, right? That, and so that's what it tells a, a clinician. It just tells a clinician you know, my client has been going through this quite a lot and they're just trying to figure out answers. So you, you, so you look at it from that lens, not from the lens of, all right, WebMD, we need to just lock you down. (laughs) But when you write it in the notes, you've told the the client. Okay. Interesting. Not, not everybody does it, but it is part of clinical practice that when you do an assessment, you know, so when you Mm -hmm. do an intake assessment, it's that you're asking all the business, Mm-hmm. You know, you're asking about the family, you're asking about the education, you're asking about previous therapy experience, you're asking about drugs, you're even asking about work. I mean, I go so, so far sometimes, tell me about middle school and high mm-hmm. school, you know, and so you're getting all the business and then that's supposed to help you figure out like where are the symptoms coming from? Is it long standing? Like how long have you been having these symptoms? Have you noticed it before? How frequent? When was the onset, et cetera? Because then it helps you to figure out, okay. Is this more of an adjustment issue or is this really like a, a major mood disorder or is this something else? Or is this because of substance use, you know? Mm-hmm. So it just helps. And so it's part of the clinical practice to offer a diagnosis in university counseling centers. Not every university counseling center will offer a diagnosis because they are of the developmental mindset that it's not helpful and it's students that they're seeing. So it's not necessary. But when you work in private practice, especially if you build through insurance, it is most likely necessary. If you're in private practice and you're private pay, it is not necessary. And how often is it that someone will be misdiagnosed where, you know, you'll maybe get their notes from their old therapist and you'll be like, oh, you don't have this. (laughs) This is exactly why some people don't like diagnosing Mm -hmm. because, yeah, Allison, depending on you saw me the other day, right, two years ago, and then Gabby sees me a couple years later, one is saying it's depression, the other one is saying it's anxiety. And the truth of it is, is that uh, misdiagnosing, it's not, I wouldn't say it's misdiagnosing. I would say that there's subjectivity in how we're hearing and and understanding what the patient's complaint is. Because there's some subjectivity, you will see people have a different way of of using or hearing that criteria. So there are certain disorders that are comorbid, which is that anxiety and depression happen usually together. Whereas in somebody may say it's anxiety with a depressive feature and others will say it's depression with an anxious feature. If it's way off, right? If it's something like somebody says you have an eating disorder versus somebody says that you have an obsessive compulsive disorder, then that's definite misdiagnosing and Mm -hmm. missing the mark. It's not often that it's so far off, but when it comes to the developmental reason, it is that some things you can grow out of. And so, yes, a bipolar two, for instance, in some hospitals. So there was a time when ADHD was overdiagnosed 
bipolar was overdiagnosed and it seemed to happen with particular people. People of color tended to be overdiagnosed bipolar and like uh, children, especially boys, seem to be overdiagnosed with ADHD. Mm-hmm. And so what was going on there? Well, I think it's similar to prevailing thought, right? Which is that uh, if you were seen, if you were like going word for word by a diagnostic, um, the DSM-5, and not even thinking about culture, then if somebody who is poor and just lost their mom or their, or their job and they're black and they come in and they're angry and they go through ups and downs of being very upset and then, then you might say, okay, that's bipolar. Mm-hmm. Whereas in somebody else with a contextual thing, we'll just say that's, that's normal response to what you're going through. Mm-hmm. And so the misdiagnosing is dependent on the clinician's cultural inform, you know, how right. they're informed culturally. Some things also look like each other. I know like it's hard. It must be hard to diagnose because, you know, ADHD sometimes looks like autism, which sometimes looks like bipolar disorder. Like, how do you parse that out? Yes. And your cognitive disorders are really difficult. Well, anxiety and ADHD has a lot of overlap. And so does uh, some of the depressive symptoms. And so with ADHD, when I do an ADHD examination or assessment, then I've learned that you use like the computer. So you use a Connors or a CPT-3, which is a computer-based test where it's, it's actually recording your hand to eye movement, reaction, response rate. I do collateral contacts, which means that the person who was your main caregiver or one of your main caregivers when you were before age 12 would be contacted and would fill out a form. I would do a clinical interview of you and also do an AC or an ACSD, which is where it's, um, it's a form in terms of these are the symptoms. What context are you experiencing these symptoms? Can you describe the symptoms? Uh, can you tell me like how severe you've experienced the symptoms? And we're thinking about it as before 12 and then as an adult. So it's pretty extensive. Mm -hmm. Now, a good battery would be also a sociological or socio, you know, socio-emotional kind of um, testing, evaluation, an IQ test and an achievement test. And that would kind of give us more information as to Mm. is this ADHD or is this anxiety? And certain people are more skilled and experienced in giving those tests than others, right? So like with certain disorders, it makes sense to go to someone who's more specialized in that if, if you think you might have it versus like a, a more general practitioner? I totally agree. I have a little bit of a bias too. In, for, in fact, for medications, I like, I think I prefer a psychiatrist versus a nurse practitioner. Now both can do it. However, one has a specialty in brain, right? In the brain science of the medication versus just an overall. And so I agree with you. Specialty, when somebody is a, has a specialty in it, it means that they've had more experience, more training, right? More supervision. And that feels a little bit more girthy for me. Mm -hmm. So I agree with that. I just think it's a little um, scary in some ways that it is really just down to this one person's assessment of you. And like we had an episode about bad therapy and how there are a lot of therapists who aren't great at their jobs. And so, you know, like we talked about with certain diagnoses tending to be overdiagnosed or misdiagnosed, like, you know, I think that women tend to get a BPD diagnosis more than maybe they should. Understanding that you can get that second opinion, that if like you feel like, oh, this might be this person's projection on me, or this feels like they gave this to me too quickly, or it doesn't fit with how I view myself, like, would you recommend seeing seeing someone else? Oh, absolutely. In fact, sometimes you don't even fit with the therapist or the clinician. Um, and I would say, give it a couple sessions, talk about it, which is always hard for clients and patients. They're like, I don't want to talk about it. I'm like, but <laughs> this is what you're supposed, <laughs> this is what you want to do. Talk about it. And if it's not working, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. It's not always a great fit. And you're right. You know, I cannot say that there are not people in my profession that are greener that are less experienced, that also come in with their own traumas and their own issues that also sometimes color. So it's not, it, you know, this is a science, but it's an art. It's, a, you know, so so that's the part where you'll see some of the gray areas. Absolutely. 
can I talk about the the use of like psychopath or sociopath in terms of diagnosing people and like how that's is that is that a thing we use now? I say we as if I'm a therapist. So no, we do not. We don't have a clinical term that we say as a psychopath. So I, you would never see in a in a, in a doctor's nose. Uh, psychopath or sociopath. Now, what you might see is tendencies, right? Psychopathic tendencies or sociopathic tendencies. But what it is, it's just the layman's term to say that with a psychopath, that there are issues that relate to empathy, manipulation. Um, same with the sociopath, that that is against, it's like an antisocial personality, right? It's a rule breaking. You're going against societal norms mm-hmm. and that there is a lack of understanding or even needing to understand as to why you are. And so, and then there's that manipulative piece in where you're using people for your own uh, benefit. So when it reaches to the level of a psychopathic uh, personality, we're usually talking about something where there is murder, death, dismemberment, right? It's taken, it's, it's gone a little bit over. However, when we talk about like sociopathic tendencies, You'll find that a lot of leaders, uh, you will have sociopathic tendencies because you have to be a master manipulator as well as, you know, not necessarily empathizing, like having a high EQ because a high EQ doesn't work for profit margins. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Right. So, so that's the, so that's sometimes where people will be like, oh, you know, you're a sociopath, but there is, you know, having charisma, being able to manipulate people, because that's what charisma is, right? People love to hear you, love to see you, love to listen to you, and then you're able to manipulate them. But then you, you lack that kind of empathy is usually how we mean when, when lay people talk about sociopathic tendency. And do you get treatment for that? Like if you get diagnosed, what do you do then? Well, most people with sociopathic tendencies don't have a problem with their, right. Uh, right. They, they're not right. They don't have a problem. Yeah. It's, it's the other people who feel. And so they're not going to come in and say, because it's working for them, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not problematic. Now, psychopathic tendencies, uh, that's problematic to the rest of the world. Right. And so their treatment is usually when, right, when they're in prison or locked up or, and now, in terms of would I have, would I come up with a treatment plan that could increase empathy? It's hard to say. I I think we'd have to see the individual here to see exactly what level of the spectrum or, you know, how up here is the lack of empathy Mm -hmm. versus, you know, is that it would be, it would be, I think, based on a case by case basis as to how the person was presenting and if they wanted to change, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the word psychopath gets thrown around a lot. And also like to bring it back to like things that are actually being diagnosed, um, narcissistic personality disorder has been thrown around a lot. I think during Trump's presidency, you know, we did an episode um, with a with a doctor who specializes in, in narcissists, treating narcissists and and spotting narcissists. And then there was a bit of pushback to to us on people who had received that diagnosis, who felt that there was stigma or that there's it's seen as like there's no help for them. They're throwaway people. Don't date them. Don't engage with them. Is that an accurate thing in your experience of like with personality disorders? Is is it something that the stigma is correct on? The stigma is not correct on? Like you have that diagnosis, you know, like what do you do then? It is stigmatizing because uh, yeah. to be considered a narcissist, you know, to have narcissistic tendencies is one thing to be diagnosed with a narcissistic personality disorder is another thing. It's not, it doesn't feel and it doesn't sound uh, very upbeat or positive. And so absolutely for a lot of people, it can be stigmatizing. However, I think that every pot has its cover. So, you know, you have a narcissist and they are paired with a dependent personality disorder and that might be a match in heaven because a dependent person wants to be told what to do, right? Wants to kind of worship somebody. And, you know, somebody who is narcissistic likes to be worshiped. So it's not necessarily that it's life altering or ending, but you want to tap into your clients and your patients and see exactly what is beneficial for them. Because our mandate is to do no harm and to Mm -hmm. do good, right? Benefits. So if telling a client, you know, that they have a narcissistic personality disorder is not going to be helpful. 
then maybe what we want to do instead is saying that you have these traits. Do you want to work on that? Or do you want to, do you want that to be done differently? Yeah. From my understanding, a lot of work with people with personality disorders isn't necessarily changing who they are, but changing how they relate to other people, right? And potentially getting, giving them some insight about how other people's brains work and how some interpersonal skills. Is, mm-hmm. is that true? Yes, that would be true. Now, the other part of it is that with some people who do have a diagnosed personality disorder, they're actually really hard to work with mm-hmm. because there's a lot of resistance and part of the entrenchment or just, you know, you, you just see it's where it's kind of like you're hitting a brick wall. So sometimes you just feel like you're talking to yourself. And so when you are working with a client who is resistant to that or part of the personality disorder is that I know more than my clinician, then it doesn't really go anywhere. For those who truly want to just say, yeah, it's not necessarily that I want to change myself, but I want to know how to relate better to other people because that would be more helpful. Then absolutely, we can do that. I wanted to talk about how gender plays in because you mentioned that a little with like boys being overdiagnosed with ADHD. And I think a lot of particularly boys of, of color are given oppositional defiant disorder and things like that. And so and and autism shows up differently in in girls. And how does gender play into the ability to get a diagnosis or what you're diagnosed as? Well, I think there's that. That's possibly more aligned with not just implicit bias, but also the biologic, right? The right. biological factors. When it comes to ADHD, it tended to manifest a little bit more clearer in boys because of the hyperactivity component that wasn't necessarily as uh, visible with girls. And so you would see, you know, my boys just being just rambunctious and just running around. And there was a thing, okay, well, it's attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Uh, So I think it's just the biology of that. There was a lot more movement, a lot more when it comes to how boys express it versus girls that probably led to, and then the implicit bias in terms of, What's the expectation of how it's supposed to look? Mm -hmm. And so the way that psychology and even treatment works and diagnosis works is that it's not until you see a representative amount or number of these symptoms co-occurring or looking a certain way in somebody, and then it's been documented that we then say, okay, let's try to figure out what this could be. Is it similar or is it different? And so if you see the behavior that's occurring more often and it's more occurring more often in boys, the way that you identify it, then you're going to be more predisposed to say, okay, boys have ADHD versus girls. And uh, the similar, and autism, that was, I think that was a little bit more of a financial or resource, uh, whereas in if you were middle class to upper middle class, then there seemed to have been a higher diagnosis of autism than if you were lower or uh, people of color too. Mm -hmm. And with autism, where we have landed right now is that there's a spectrum. Mm -hmm. So instead of having these different classifications, it's more that there's a spectrum. And the autistic diagnosis is also very controversial because what you're saying is that there's a normal way to behave or be and anything outside of normal is problematic or is a disorder. Mm -hmm. So that's the part, you know, so if you have a child that has trouble with expressing emotions, the way that it looks on a person or reading emotions, or then loves to organize their toys in a certain way or doesn't want it to be touched, then there's a sense of, is are they autistic? And it's only because it's, as far as that we see it, it's not typical behavior of how, you know, we think of some, a normal child. I think that's a lens that you want to look at, which is, am I more predisposed, predisposed to saying that it's a disorder because this is not typical behavior? I mean, also, I think like there's expectations, right? So uh, little boys are are supposed to be hyperactive or this this little girl doesn't have autism. She just, or OCD, she's just cleanly. Like little girls are supposed to be, you know? I think like things stand out versus our societal expectation of how each gender behaves. Have those uh, stereotypical roles. Right. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on somebody self-diagnosing? So with a range of things, you know, maybe because it is so hard to get 
autism testing and it is so expensive for someone to just self-diagnose? I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of self-diagnosing. I mean, I think I do it just as well. Like, you know, I have a cough. Oh my God, I think this might be it. And so we do it and we do it because we are trying to find answers. I'm just not a fan because, you know, it's, it's similar to sometimes a little education isn't helpful when you might think that this is it, but you don't have necessarily all the criteria or all the context to look at. On the other hand, though, I understand that you're, you may be doing it because we think of the gestalt, which is that we like our eyes dotted or T's crossed or a ribbon tied around the box, right? That all the corners are closed. And that that's what happens when we self-diagnose. It's, it's that we're saying, okay, now we have this answer. The box is closed. I get it. You know, this feels like, okay, the unknown always feels worse for a lot of people than the known. But the short answer is not a fan of self-diagnosis. <laughs> what are the pitfalls of it? What, what could be the consequences? Well, that you actually have diagnosed yourself incorrectly, that you haven't, you know, that if the diagnosis is not linked to a treatment, then, uh, then now it's not even helpful. If you have not necessarily gone and seen somebody who can give you more uh, information and, and also take into context that you are not necessarily considering, that there is a lack of perspective when it comes to diagnosing yourself, which is what you get when you have somebody who doesn't know you as well to do. You don't necessarily have the education or the experience and that you may be actually going with a quick fix which is not actually the real problem. I understand the idea of feeling like, well, I know more about myself and my experience than someone I'm seeing two or three times. And the cost of getting diagnosed and like, I see a lot of young people who their parents don't want to take them or they don't want to tell their parents that they think they have something going on. Like, I just have seen such a rise in this self-diagnosing because it's hard to get a diagnosis, but I also wonder how much of it is like, this doctor isn't telling me what I want to hear. Yeah. Like I keep going to different doctors until I get a bipolar diagnosis until I get, you know? Well, I mean, that in itself is a symptom, right? That in itself is an, is information for a clinician when somebody is like that. The trouble with self-diagnosing is that you are only seeing um, the first layer of something. There are many people that come into my office and say, I have ADHD. Mm -hmm. They've diagnosed themselves with ADHD because they've gone with the symptom of, it's hard for me to focus, I have difficulty concentrating, and I'm very distracted. That is not ADHD. Those are symptoms of ADHD, but for you to get a diagnosis, you have to have multiple symptoms and in certain contexts at certain lengths. So the self-diagnostic part is that you are, you are not considering exactly what it actually takes to be diagnosed. You know, there's one thing to, you know, diag diagnosing is not a layman's thing. It's a, a medical person's tool. So coming in and saying, I experienced these symptoms is one thing, but giving yourself a diagnosis when you're not a doctor is Another thing, it's like going into your medical professional and saying, I think I have cancer. Like I've diagnosed myself with cancer, right? It's a difference between I think I have versus I've diagnosed myself with cancer. You don't do that. I don't diagnose myself with diabetes. I don't diagnose myself with a broken, right? I, so it's, it's that you can say, these are the things I'm considering based on. And what I hear when clients do that is that I'm hearing them say, okay, this is what I'm experiencing, that you're experiencing some of these symptoms. And now let's try to help you figure out. The other part of diagnostics is that it's supposed to help with a treatment plan. That's really the other key, right? It's a quick way for clinicians and everybody to know what are your symptoms or what are, what is it, the constellation of symptoms you're experiencing, but also what's the treatment for those symptoms. And if you're coming in, well, if you are diagnosing yourself outside, right, are you also treating yourself? Mm -hmm. Well, it's hard because with cancer and diabetes, there are tests and, and medical tests you can do. But with mental health, it's a lot of self-reporting and like a lot of, you know, cataloging of your own symptoms. And 
I think I see a similarity with people who have invisible disabilities where they go into doctors and they're not believed. And so it is it is a different thing with, you know, getting diagnosed with something mental health wise versus like, which you can look up, you know, versus getting uh, like a tumor x-rayed. Well, it's, there is more to it than just a self-report. So think about it this way, because this is how I explain it to my clients. I'm a detective and I'm here to help you figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. You can think that, right, as a, as a detective, yeah, you see all these symptoms, but it takes somebody who's trained to kind of put it together and figure out what's the right questions to ask you to get to the answer. So it's not just a checklist which is why some people don't even want to do diagnosis because it isn't just a checklist. There are actually pointed questions that you have to ask and there is exploring of some of the symptoms. When I ask somebody, when I assess for mania and I ask the question, has there been times when you feel really like on top of the world, you had a high self-esteem, you were very confident, you may need a decreased need for sleep, you were very goal-oriented, you did a lot of activities, They say, yes, absolutely. Now, do I just check off? Well, yep, this person had mania. No, I don't. Because that's the truth. There's sometimes when we do feel like really high Mm self-confident. So I go a little bit more, I go a little deeper. Tell me about those times. Was the sleep, the decreased need for sleep, how long did you not need to sleep? And then I'll hear, well, I was doing a project. And so I didn't sleep because I was working on the project. That's not mania. That's goal-directed work. You know, so that's what I mean is that we, we don't just take it at face value. You know, there's more of an interrogation in a sense of an interview like a detective would do to kind of get to the answer. A lot of times I always wonder, like, you know, when people are like, oh, I just don't think I have the right diagnosis or I haven't gotten diagnosed or, you know, how or they, they're upset that they got this diagnosis. You know, how much does a diagnosis matter versus how much does it matter just knowing what your symptoms are and then treating those symptoms? Personally, I think it matters more about your symptoms and treating those symptoms. But for people who are upset with what they, you know, we're supposed to talk about it. You're not supposed to leave the session pissed off and saying, I want to, we're supposed to be talking about it. And and to your point, Gabby, if you came in and you said, you know, I I don't agree with that. We talk about it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's, you know, tell me what you don't agree with. And then you say, well, I think you misunderstood when you said, right, when you gave me a PTSD and you said I had nightmares, this is what I need. And so the, there, there is both, both are correct, which is that you are the expert in your life, but I am supposed to use my experience and my knowledge and my education to help kind of figure out what works. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, yes, I can get it wrong. And it's not supposed to be so disconnecting where you're just like, forget her. It's supposed to be, okay, let's talk about this. Okay, what did I misunderstand? What didn't I hear correctly? Right. You know, let me ask you more questions so that I, I'm, I'm better informed. You know, the therapy process and the diagnostic process is about assessing to understand what you're saying, not for me to necessarily put my judgment and my assumptions on you. Before we move on, I guess my one of my final questions is just, When you get a mental health diagnosis, how often is that lifelong? Like, should you ever expect that that diagnosis will be lifted, that you will no longer have like major depressive disorder or OCD? Or is it most likely, aside from like adjustment disorder, is it most likely something that you're going to have the rest of your life? Not necessarily. In fact, when we do uh, disability verification forms, you'll say, is it temporary or is it permanent? We only use permanent if it's going to be multiple years but not necessarily the rest of your life. And then when we say temporary, it means less than a year, right? That it's, it's, it's something contextual. And that's the other reason why some places don't like to use diagnosis because it's not, it's not necessary that you're going to have this diagnosis for the rest of your life. Uh, some of the things you actually process and you move through, take for instance, PTSD, that's a diagnosis that when treated and with continued therapy, you can actually stop or reduce the symptoms. And if your symptoms have been reduced, if you're not having nightmares, if you're not hypervigilant, if you're not, you know, if you're not anxious uh, more so than not, then you, you no longer fit the criteria for PTSD diagnosis. Yeah, I think community in some ways can be helpful and harmful because, it, and, and I mean community in support groups, but I also mean community in terms of how much it's grown online where 
you know, your identity is so tied to, you know, like Allison is, is a very big voice in the OCD community. And I know that like, you've been like, well, if I don't have severe OCD symptoms right now, is this even my community? It's such a weird thing right now where I, I just have seen a lot of like, oh, I don't want to get diagnosed with schizophrenia because that will impede jobs or that will impede my ability to sign up for things. Or, you know, it's, it's like a a mark on your, uh, on your paperwork or like it could, you know, hinder stuff for you. But then self-diagnosis is so widespread now, at least among like Gen Z, young people that I'm seeing where it creates these big communities. So I don't know what came first, like the need for community or the creation of these communities through self-diagnosis. In the DSM, we won't see some of the things that people have diagnosed themselves as and that there's literature, not not peer-reviewed literature, which is different, but there is right literature on uh, the symptoms and the diagnosis up. Mm -hmm. So things like that. It's it's really hard. Like, I feel that you need to learn from your clients. So if your client comes in and says, yeah, what's going on with like OCPD? And I'm like, okay, so I'm not very familiar with that uh, terminology. Let me look it up and let me kind of let you know if I feel like I'm competent to treat you on this, or maybe it's better to refer you on this. Mm -hmm. I had a client that came in um, and talked about misophonia and I was like, okay, So this is a particular like phobia or response or reaction to an auditory stimuli. Yeah. So there is certain things in where we can say, okay, we know what the treatment for OCD is. We know what the treatment for um, phobias are, but do those necessarily work with these other things that are coming in that peer reviewed literature? What does that tell us in, in our world? In our world, it says that there were certain standards that had to be met to do this clinical trial. Mm -hmm. And then it was written up and in a way that it can be not only redone exactly the same way to get the same results, but that there is enough evidence here that says that these things have statistical significance. Mm -hmm. It's not to say that if it's not peer reviewed, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. It's just to say that there is more and more things coming up that psychology um, hasn't caught up to as yet. And so there's several different branches as it's coming out, almost like when we when we talk about drug use. Mm-hmm. Before you knew it, right, there was a swizzle and I was like, okay, or scissor or sizzle <laughs> or whatever, whatever it was. You're like, now we got to deal with scissor. Oh my God. (laughs) Right. Okay. Whatever it was, but there was so many different, uh, so many different like outcroppings that it was more so than actually literature was actually keeping up with, or, and that you had to just kind of inform yourself. So a, you don't want your client to be doing all the work. That's Mm -hmm. the first thing. B, you do want to make space to say that, okay, my client is coming in with something that I may not be aware of and I need to update or kind of figure this out and see, then tell my client, okay, do I feel like I can do this? Do I feel competent to do this? Or can I find somebody else that I can refer them to? That's really what you want. What really matters is your symptoms. What really matters is your quality of life. What is interfering with your functioning and how do we work and tackle on that? And like, while I do think that there is like a lot of help in community and in seeing other people with similar diagnosis talking about at the end of the day, I have a symptoms first approach where it's like, as long as your therapist is helping you with those symptoms, that's what matters. Right. And if community helps you, then it helps you. But you have to be doing treatment too. Treatments also. Yeah. You know, the other part of it is that we expect, you know, we, we sometimes think of the medical model and where you come in with your symptoms and okay, here's a drug, right? It's supposed to be fixed, right? But how many of us actually have had experience of the medical model where they don't have any idea what is wrong with you? Mm-hmm. And they keep giving you tests and to test and to test right. and how frustrating that is. And then you are saying, your doctors, you're supposed to know what the heck is this all about? There's no expectation of why you can't figure out the answers. And so with both of those things, um, as it is when going into psychology to see a psychologist, 
there's an expectation or just a need for an answer so that, or not just an answer, but a treatment that will work, that I will see a definite improvement within a week. Let's be clear, right? It's not when, <laughs> when you come back, right? When you come back three months later, and you're like, it doesn't work. You're like, well, sometimes it takes a while. It doesn't just happen right like that. And that's part of the, the issue too, is that good therapy, I think, manages expectations. It says, you know, sometimes this is not like, I, I, I talk about mindfulness and I was like, I didn't have no time for mindfulness. I was just like, <laughs> I don't know what's all of this. Don't got no time for mindful eating. Okay. This isn't, but the more, but I, but I, I honored the research, right? The research said that this was something that helped with attention, with depressive symptoms, with anxiety. It was just, you know, we think about anxiety, which is worry about the future, depression, which is stuck in the past. This is being grounded right here and now. And so I would use it as an intervention. And what I would notice is that since I was doing it in session, teaching clients how to just do it, because for myself, I know three minutes or 10 minutes was too long. And so I started with like a minute, then ramped up to three. And so I would do little sessions like that. I was like, oh, this is actually working. Oh my <laughs> God, I'm getting a hangout, right? And so I saw that it was months later that I recognized that it does work, that now it's like I was growing that muscle. Mm -hmm. And so I will sometimes even say, right, that the 10%, you know, Dan Harris talked about 10% happier, but even a 10% change in your management of your symptoms is movement. It's absolutely movement. And a relapse or a regression is not indicative that we need to scrap it because it's also part of the process. But we have to keep talking to see, right? Do we add more? Do we take away? Do we try something else? Um, because it's that's the art of therapy. Right. This was so wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, but we're not letting you go yet. So <laughs> stick around after the break. We'll be asking three questions. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you all about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then she can either type her response or use their voice to text feature. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Right before I found out about this project, my mom made an offhand comment about wanting to write a memoir because she had such a wild childhood and there are all these things she's never really talked to us about. But asking someone to sit down and write a memoir is kind of daunting. So then I got her mylifeinabook.com and now she's getting prompts to answer on a weekly basis and it's a lot easier than just undertaking an entire memoir. I'm so excited to see what my mom does with mylifeinabook.com because she's someone who doesn't always feel comfortable just sharing about herself, but having these prompts and knowing that I really want to hear her answers is going to inspire her to probably share more with me about her life and her upbringing than I've ever been shared with before. So I'm so excited for that. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code just between us at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com. Use code just between us for 10% off today. us it's time for three questions so um our first question because we always like to kind of get to know you know mental health professionals own relationship with their own mental health is what is something that you wish you had known about mental health when you were younger 
I would say how much the support of others, like your family and friends actually make. I mean, mm-hmm. when I don't know about anybody else, but when I was young, I was just like, you can't tell me nothing. I got this right. It's, it's all about, um, you're standing in my way. And especially if you were offering any suggestions or advice, oh, hell, oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> However, what I do recognize now that I didn't before it is actually the support of your family and your friends that has helped you go through those feeling stuck, distressed, depressed, even suicidal and feeling like, you know, your world isn't going to be better. And so it was, it was there. I think it was them and it's their experience or just knowing that they would say things like, no, 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 it's really going to be better. Uh, Even though I wasn't accepting it then, I realized now was actually a huge help. That's lovely. And that you have to, to give support to get support in a way that like building your social support system is something you have to actually work on and because the the payoff is important yes and be willing to ask for help you know Mm -hmm. not saying that I can do this by myself you don't need to do it by yourself right right? I don't even know when we got into the mentality of we should just do you know we don't need other people it's so much better when you ask for help or you get somebody else to help in this so that's that's the part that, yeah, I'm glad that I know now. <laughs> uh, what is something that you really are happy you now know about mental health that you implement into your daily life? That it's not stagnant, that your mental mm-hmm. health, like your self-esteem, like your self-confidence, right, is kind of on a, it grows, it ebbs, it flows. And so how you feel today is not how you will feel tomorrow or the next day. And that is really helpful when you're sad or you're anxious, or you're, you know, you just feel overwhelmed. It doesn't last. It's very temporary. I mean, so the good thing is that when you're happy and you're excited, you want to hold on to that because, right, whenever you, whenever you get challenges or setbacks, is that you want to see these as growth opportunities. So it is a reframe and it's really hard. I mean, I sometimes will say, you got to learn how to be like Bruce Lee at jujitsu. <laughs> you know, it's not easy. It's years of training, but we can do it with the reframe of these setbacks and challenges as growth opportunities. And then the way that we are, it's not stagnant. It ebb, flows and grows. Mm-hmm. Whoa. I love that. Ebb, flows and grows. Put it on a mug. <laughs> um, and then our, our final question is just, uh, what is something you're still working on implementing into your mental health care? That darn self-care routine. Okay, I don't know how many, right? How many times have we all heard this? Yeah. Do it, do it, do it. Okay, so it's really hard. Like we've created it. Creating is not a problem. Maintaining it is a problem. And Mm -hmm. I see our self-care routine as like our financial savings account. Mm -hmm. It is, right? You want to pay yourself first. You want to get into a habit of always, every time you get a check that you put some of it in the savings account and you don't want to be spending out of your savings account. And so maintaining your self-care routine has been really difficult, but it's, it's where I'm realizing that if I'm not putting in that, then you feel more stressed, more overwhelmed because you haven't made a practice daily or weekly of implementing something that creates pleasure. And I mean, it doesn't have to be relaxation. It can just be pleasure. And we're talking about anything at all, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, but making sure that it is there weekly. And so that's been a little bit more difficult than I thought it would be, as well as how you disconnect your self-worth from your earning potential or the leadership positions that you're in, right? Mm -hmm. We tend to have those conflated And sometimes when we don't get that promotion or we don't earn as much, we feel like, okay, what does that say about me? And so that's the part that needs to be disconnected. Every mental health professional we've talked to has been like, I don't know how to do self-care. I'm too productive. (laughs) And you see how you see how those two are connected right there, right? Mm -hmm. Because if we have our self-worth, right, connected to our earning potential or production or how much we produce, then we are not actually maintaining a mm-hmm. self-care routine, which is no, is no bueno, no bueno. <laughs> I, I completely agree. Um, all of this was so wonderful and helpful. And before we let you go, we like to 
to put you on in the hot seat and have you rate your experience being on the podcast. <laughs> How did uh, you find it? Well, okay, up- wait, what's what's the units? Is it one to 10? To you get to make it up. You can totally create your own rating scale. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to say that this was a good experience. Allison, you really asked some tough questions. And so <laughs> did you, Gabby. Okay, so kudos to your journalistic questions. I mean, you were like, hey, so I love that too. And, and, and I do love it. And I, so I would give it a 10 out of 10 as a really good experience. I, I'm not sweating too heavily. So that means that, right, I feel pretty confident. Oh, amazing. Oh, thank you for being here. Where can people follow you and, and find out more about your work? Oh, so Dr. Shelley says it's my IG and I need to do better at it. But I'm, I'm trying to put together uh, social media campaigns and where I talk to how to, right? How to maintain mm. a self-care routine, how to do stuff like that. Um, so Dr. Shelley says S-E-Z, not S-A-Y-S, which is Instagram. And then the Black Girl Doctor, where we do blogs, where we write blogs. So theblackgirldoctor.com. Amazing. Thank you so much. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by Allison Raskin and me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Monts. Executive produced by Brett Bohm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. Check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or youtube.com slash show. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also at Emotional Sport Lady for Allison and at Gabby Road for me, Gabby, and also at Allison Raskin for Allison. But honestly, you're going to want to see the cartoons on Emotional Sport Lady. So please go follow that and me at Gabby Road. But I don't have any cartoons. Forever. Yeah.